everybody, it's David Creek. I want to thank you for listening to the Westchester Church Podcast. We're coming to you from the Philadelphia area. And you can check out our website at westchestercfc.com. Westchestercfc.com. When we think of the things that Jesus said, our minds almost exclusively take us to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We think about the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus said to the woman at the well of Sychar. We remember his parables and the things that he said to his apostles in the upper room and as he gave his great commission after he arose from the grave. But when Jesus said, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he died on the cross, and when he said what he said to the disciples just moments before his ascension, those were not his last words. And that's because we serve a risen Savior. And as we see after the book of John, the voice of Jesus is heard anew. His words are spoken well into Acts and into the epistles and beyond. We think about Saul of Tarsus is on the road to Damascus when all of a sudden he's blinded by a great light and he hears a foreign voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then that voice identifies itself, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And yet what we will especially witness these next several weeks in the book of Revelation is that the risen Jesus speaks in the book of Revelation. And in the very last book of Scripture, there is live red ink once again. Well, Revelation is a letter written to Christians who had survived the cataclysmic times of the 60s and 70s AD. They've lived through devastating famines, through catastrophic earthquakes, and through brutal persecutions. And now in the late 80s, perhaps mid-90s AD, Jesus addresses seven house churches living on the provinces of ancient Asia Minor. And yet most importantly, though, we need to always point out in this book that that Jesus does so implementing the, the use of symbols. Well, as we come to Revelation chapter 1 this morning, close to the beginning of the letter, John hears a voice. There's a voice calling out to him, and and as he looks around, he sees seven golden lampstands. And then, most importantly, though, he sees the risen Jesus walking in their midst. And I love the way that Jesus is described to us in these symbols and in these visions He's described to us as having a face that is shining like the sun, hair that is whiter than snow, eyes that are like great flames of fire, feet that are like burnished bronze. John says that he's holding seven stars in his right hand and and a double-edged sword is in his mouth. And so we read this morning, beginning in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17, John, through the Holy Spirit and by the vision of Jesus Christ, says that when I saw him, when I saw Jesus, 
I fell down at his feet as though dead. But he held his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and I am the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. And so write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And Revelation doesn't always do this, but on this occasion, Jesus reveals what these symbols mean. As he says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, here's what they represent, here's what they are. He says that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, I don't know if, if that means that each and every church of Jesus has an angel watching over it, or if this is representative of their elders or, or servants, or, you know, we don't know for sure, but maybe a combination of everything. But, and then he says, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We are the lampstands, brothers and sisters. And then upon saying this, Jesus then begins the first of these letters that he addresses to these churches. And he begins with the church in Ephesus, where it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, that The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Brothers and sisters, are we aware that whenever we gather together, whenever we assemble in the name of Jesus Christ, that the risen Jesus is in our midst? I don't know about you, but if I was always aware that Jesus is in our midst together, that would change the way that I worship. That would change the way that I preach. It would change the way that I ate the bread and drank the cup, and and more than anything, it would change the way that I, I went out into the world knowing that Jesus is in my midst. Well, he continues, and he says in verse 2 that, that I know your works, and I know your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. And he says in verse 3 that I know that you are patiently enduring and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. As Jesus addresses his church in the city of Ephesus, what immediately jumps out at us is, wow. I mean, what an incredible church this is. We would look at Ephesus at this point and say, this is a strong church. I mean, what more could you possibly want in a congregation? I mean, this is the kind of church that people dream of being a part of. And so Jesus begins and he says that I know your works. Remember, chapter 1 of verse 14, Jesus, how it says that the eyes of the Lord are like flames of fire. The eyes of Jesus are upon his, his people. The Lord sees and Jesus looks. He says that I see your blood, sweat, and tear as you live, tire, as you live tirelessly every single day in my name. I witness to your defense of the truth. That when you hear something taught in a church, you don't just take the person's word for it, but you see if it is really according to what you receive from that very first time that you heard and knew that it was Christ's doctrine. 
He's saying that you're able to distinguish the truth from what is a deceptive theology. He says that I know that you have endured nightmarish circumstances and indescribable persecutions for my name's sake. Your struggles are great. Those who oppose you are, are many. And yet he praises them and he commends them. He says, but, but even despite of all of that stuff that you have withstood, you have not given up. You have not grown weary in living the Christian life. And later on in the letter, he's going to also say that, that you also hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now we're going to spend more specific time on the Nicolaitans later on in our series in another letter when they're mentioned in greater detail. But suffice to say, the Nicolaitans were, were just another group spreading false doctrine about Christ. And yet as for this morning, though, what we notice about the church of Ephesus is that they have the right work ethic. They've got the right commitment, they've got the right doctrine, and the right endurance. And I mean, by every appearance of this church, we would say this is a strong church. This is a resilient church. This is a busy, informed, faithful congregation of God's people. And yet having said that, though, even though the letter begins with these glowing commendations and affirmations that he acknowledges before them, that is not where the letter ends. Even though they are such a strong and resilient church, well, there's something gravely wrong with this congregation. I mean, on paper, Ephesus is a strong church. And Jesus is revealing to them right now that actually you are a sick church. He can only see one malady there. And yet it was a destructive malady and a deadly malady. They don't even know it, but they have a cancer that is infesting this congregation. And it is malignant. And this cancer is in stage four. And so Jesus says in verse four, and he reveals what this sickness was, where he says that I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. They have heart problems in Ephesus. And so the great physician's diagnosis of this church is that you have abandoned the love that you used to have once upon a time in your walk with me. Now if I could stop for just a moment, I mean, if we were to go back in time somehow and to go back to ancient Ephesus in the time machine, if that even existed, and we were to sit down in that house church and just to ask everybody, hey, do you love the Lord? I mean, every single person would have said, well, of course we love God. I mean, why would you even ask that question? And I think we would say the same here this morning. And I think everybody in churches this morning would say, yes, yes, of course we are a church of love. And yet notice very carefully, though, in, in what Jesus says to this church, he doesn't say that, that you've abandoned your love. Rather, he says that you have abandoned the love that you used to have. You see, that, that is what Jesus wants. 
That is what Jesus wants them desperately to go back to. You know, how many marriages have resulted in one spouse saying to the other, you don't love me like you used to. I mean, yes, we have all of these nice things. We've got a nice car and a big house. And yet we never see you. You're, you're always at work. You're always missing our daughter's piano recitals. Even when you're here, you're not really here. You are emotionally far away and distant. And I think this is what Jesus is saying to his bride, the church. He's saying that, that you don't love me the way that you used to. I desperately want to be married to the person who I said I do to. You see, the problem for him is that their, their love for him, their love for the church, their love for their fellow man, it's lost its luster. It's lost its intensity. And for a very long time, the love in this church has been flickering and burning dangerously low. I remember many years ago when I was little, one of my first memories in life was, was a woman in children's Bible hour teaching us to sing, don't let Satan get out. And yet that is precisely what has happened at the church in Ephesus. They've been extinguished. I mean, the Ephesian church, as Jesus said in this vision, is representative of a lampstand of all things. And what is a lampstand? Jesus says that you are a city on a hill. That you exist as my people to shine and to illuminate this dark world. And the flame that burns bright in this dark and lonely world is the love of Jesus Christ in us. And yet such a light as this no longer shines in the city of Ephesus as it once did. Well, it reminded me a lot of, of a song that I, I remember, an old black and white clip of Nat King Cole. I don't know if anybody remembers it, but it's called A House with Love in It. And he sang it at Christmas time one year, and, and the words go, you know, he's got that velvety voice. And the words go, A house with love in it is rich indeed. Although there are a thousand things that house may need, the carpet may be old, the room so plain and bare, and yet it's beautiful somehow if love is living there. A house with love in it just seems to bloom, as though the month of May were filling every room. And so through the years, with all my heart, I pray, a house with love in it is where we'll stay. And in so many ways, that is what Jesus wants for his church in Ephesus. His heart's desire is, so through the years, with all my heart I'll pray, a house with love in it is what you will remain. And you know, that's what Jesus wants for his people in Westchester too. And yet that cannot be said of Ephesus, though, as Jesus dictates his letter. Ephesus is no longer a house with love in it. And I think the lesson is very obvious to us, isn't it? And what that lesson is, is that we can work our fingers to the bone in Jesus' name. 
We could expend every last ounce of our energy working with every fiber of our being for Jesus Christ. We can have a thousand church programs. We can have all of the right answers in Bible class and still, and still grieve the heart of Jesus if we are doing all of those things but we're not a house with love in it. I think about the Pharisees. You know, who knew more about God than the Pharisees? Who traveled further away than the Sadducees and Pharisees? Who could quote more scripture than than the Pharisees? And yet, who loved less than the Pharisees? You see, their lack of love actually was a revealing, it was an apocalypse that they don't actually know God at all. And so the Apostle Paul, writing to a church, not wanting that church to be a church of Pharisees, says that that even if I could speak in the tongues of angels, let's just imagine that, that I could speak fluent angel, and yet if I did not have love as I spoke fluent angel, what am I? I'm just a noisy gong and I'm a clanging cymbal. And if I had all of the prophetic powers that a person could have, and I understood all mysteries, and I knew everything about the nature of God, if I had all the faith in the world so strong that I could even move mountains into the heart of the sea, but I did all of that without love. He said that I'm absolutely nothing. He says, even if I were to offer up my body in the flames as a martyr to the cause of Christ, but I did that with with anger and with pride and with hatred in my heart, he says that I, I gain absolutely nothing in doing that. I think the main problem in this church is that this is not the Ephesian church that Paul once knew. When we really stop and think about it, this congregation in Ephesus had more advantages, arguably, than any other church ever had. I mean, it was the Apostle Paul himself who had once, once upon a time planted this church. Paul spent more time with the Ephesians than he did anywhere else, spent at least three years there. History says that also, not just one apostle, but also two apostles, John, also came there and worked among them. We know that this is not the first letter that they ever received. We, we all remember Paul one generation earlier. Cries rang out in this church. We have received a letter from the Apostle Paul. Let us all gather together and read it. And as we see in the book of Ephesians, when this letter had been read to them, of all things what the Apostle Paul commends them for is, get ready for it, how much they loved. Where once upon a time this church heard, read to them, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15, Paul saying that for this reason, that because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and I have heard about your love towards all of the saints. I mean, this is a huge compliment. This is a big deal. Where Paul, in all of his journeys, he has been hearing from multiple sources. Man, those people in Ephesus, that that is a, a house with love in it. And midway into the letter, he also reminds them and he, and he instructs them. He says that his prayer for them is that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith, 
but then being rooted and grounded in love, in love, may be able to comprehend the depth of the love of Jesus Christ. Paul speaks about love until the final closing words of the epistle where Ephesians ends with these words, and he says, Peace be to the brothers in love with faith. Then he leaves them and he says, Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. Did you hear that? Literally, the last words of Ephesians are, the last three words are, with love incorruptible. He's saying, hold on to that love that you have and never, ever let it go. Don't let the world or the evil one or other people rob you of the way that you're loving. Have a love that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. And yet the great tragedy of the letter that Jesus dictates to them is that, sadly, that love has eroded. It's deteriorated. And now, 30 years later, imagine being a part of this same exact church as the news rings out in the congregation. We have just received a letter, everybody. Only on this occasion, it's not from the Apostle Paul, as great as that was, but I'm holding a letter in my hands from Jesus Christ himself. If I stood up this morning and said, I've got a letter that that Jesus personally wrote to the church at Westchester, I mean, would he have our undivided attention? I think that he would. And so imagine sitting in the midst of this house church as these words are read to them from Jesus. To the church at Ephesus write, I see your toil. I see your great devotion and your defense of the truth. And yet imagine how every ear had tingled in that hearing as it says, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. It's no longer an incorruptible love. And Jesus then in verse 5 gives them an ultimatum. And he says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. They have fallen. And so he says, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, he says, that I will come and remove the lampstand from its place. Unless, Jesus says, you repent. A couple weeks ago, oh, excuse me. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was watching a show called Undercover Boss. I don't know if you've ever watched it before. It's where um, CEOs go undercover and they, they impose as just ordinary employees. Well, in this particular episode, there was a fast food restaurant being featured in And they had a supervisor who was treating his employees rather horribly. And I mean, these guys were not goofing around. They were working very hard. But no matter what they did, he was going to yell at them and talk down to them. Well, this continued until one particular employee who was about college age. He just started breaking down and he started crying in the parking lot. He said, this guy makes me feel absolutely worthless, but I need this job. My mother and my young son, they are counting on me to bring home money. So it doesn't matter how terribly he treats me, I have to just keep taking it every day because I need this money. 
Well, there's a new hire who he is saying all of this to. He's a new employee there. And so he asks him, you know, he pulls his manager aside and he says, you know, why are you speaking to your employees like this? And the manager chewed this new hire out in the most condescending way imaginable. He said that you don't have what it takes to be in this business. And he just said, said very dehumanizing things to him. But then came the revelation, the unveiling, the apocalypse for this manager. Where the guy said, oh, by the way, actually, I've, I've been in the fast food industry for over 20 years. And it might interest you to know that I'm actually the CEO of this company. And then the smug look on that guy's face just, <laughs> it went away. Where it's like everybody watching is like, yeah. <laughs> that, guy who you would, that guy who you were just speaking down to as if he were eight years old, that's the CEO of your company. And what he said to this manager is that what I've seen here today has shown me that actually you're the one who doesn't belong here. And so he said, I've got news for you. You don't work here anymore. And I'm shutting this restaurant down until we get a manager in here who knows how to talk to my employees like human beings. And what Jesus is saying to his church in Ephesus is that if, if you're not going to love me the way that you used to, if you're not going to love your fellow man the way that I want you to, the way that I, I have died for you to live, I'm shutting this congregation down right now. If you want to keep being a house without love in it, you're not going to be a church much longer. And you know, I think what happened in Ephesus is that with all of this correction of heresy and all of these shutting down of, of a, one false teacher after another, I think somewhere along the way their mission went from being loving God and loving neighbor as themselves to being heresy hunters, being church sheriffs who live to confront somebody for something, for any reason, flash the sirens and write them a ticket, you know? I mean, don't get me wrong, Exposing false teaching is necessary whenever it comes into the church. We need to do this. And yet, let the corrector beware when we do this. And that's because it can be so easy for that to give us angry, harsh, arrogant, and argumentative spirits. And I think more than anything, what they need to do in Ephesus is to remember what the Apostle Paul said to them when he wrote them 30 years earlier. And he said, we, we must no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. They're doing that very well. And yet what Paul goes on to say to them is, is rather speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth with a heart full of love and humility, we are to grow up in Christ. And so Jesus says, repent. He's saying, rediscover that childlike wonderment and love that you have for me at the baptistry. He says, put on the hearts that you used to have, and then and only then can we be overcomers. 
And yet again, if they don't, if they continue being a house with love, or rather without love in it, Jesus is shutting them down. And yet lastly, what we see is this morning is that the good news is, is that even with the rebuke of Jesus, always comes the loving invitation to start all over again. And the word that we will find again and again and again in these letters in Revelation is the word repent. And yet I fear that as Americans, we have a hang up with that word repent. We have a misunderstanding about that word, I I fear. And with great reason. You know, a few days ago, Amanda and I were driving through South Carolina. And she pointed out a billboard to me. Black background, fiery red lettering, all caps, said REPENT. And like three exclamation points, REPENT. And then about 20 minutes later, we're driving, and there's another billboard, and this one says, I said, REPENT. I said. It's like, you know, that's, that's, that's a little aggressive, isn't it? It's like, they're portraying God as saying, right now, repent. Repent right now. Do it. Repent right now. Repent right now, or else. (laughs) It's like, you have no choice. We're going to make you believe in me. And I'm going to scare you into coming to church. And I think that for far too many people, that type of stuff, has caused a lot of people to seek a divorce from from church in the first place. Or it was just just a bunch of angry people yelling religious phraseology at them. you got to believe, you got to repent, you got to be baptized, you got to go to church. All of that is true, but far too often what the missing ingredient is that they forgot. Where they should have started before they got to all of that was love the Lord your God with all of your heart with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, when Jesus uses that word repent, it's not passive-aggressive spiritual manipulation. Rather, it is a reprieve. That you can actually live, and that you can learn to live with the love of the divine in your soul. Well, we've spoken a lot about what Jesus has said, but I want to close this morning with what Jesus has done. In the Gospels, we meet a young man who's very wealthy. And he wants to know how he can get the kind of life that Jesus spoke of. And and what we see unfold before us in the text is, is, listen, I know your works. You've kept the commandments from childhood. You're faithful to your spouse. You honor your mother and father. You deal honestly with other people. You don't steal from anybody. And yet this I have against you. That your love for money and for materialistic possessions, that that is greater than your love of me. And so he says, sell everything that you have. Give all of the proceeds to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. And then and only then can you be a follower of mine. 
And yet, you know, the most urgent part of that whole story is not that he had a lot of stuff or that he walked away grieving because he chose his stuff. It's not even really, really the most important thing isn't even about Jesus saying how hard it was for a rich man to enter into heaven. Rather, the most urgent part of that story is is Mark saying that even as he said all of these things to Jesus, Mark says Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Again, Jesus looks, Jesus sees, and he observes, and looking at even a person who was about 20 seconds from rejecting him, Jesus loved him. See, our Lord is a house with love in it. And so Jesus says to them, Remember therefore from where you have fallen and repent and do the works that you did at first. And so his invitation comes to us in verse 7 of our text where he ends the letter to Ephesus and he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And that's his word to the church at Ephesus. And that's his word to the church at Westchester. And to any other church who wears his name. That it is only by his truth and by his love with that truth that we overcome. And so I want to invite you this morning, and what I want to invite I myself to this week is to remember. I want us to remember the day that we were baptized. I want us to go back to that childlike wonderment in our hearts where where we were madly in love with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where we would go up to anybody and say, hey, I was just baptized last night. And I want us to carry that joy and that euphoria into our future with us. That we seek the heart of God all over again and never stop seeking the heart of God. So that wherever we go and whoever we stand before, brothers and sisters, that we may remain and never stop being a house with love that is in it.